folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G-E-E-S, emil.gorgis at tokyorealty.jp. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. Okay, so a bit of a long one for you today, if you're that way inclined. I recently had the pleasure of being interviewed for an awesome new podcast with an awesome host. She's from the US, her name is Siray, and she was one of the nicest interviewers I've ever had the chance to speak to, as you'll see or hear if you're tuning in via the Japan Real Estate Podcast in just a minute. And her podcast is named International Real Estate Advisors with C-Ray. And as you'd expect, she regularly brings on various real estate professionals from all around the globe and chats to them about all things related to their countries and areas of expertise, which is exactly what we've done in our conversation as well. Highly recommended podcast to subscribe and listen to, and we'll link to it in this episode show notes, of course. So we talk a lot about the Japanese real estate market, how it's different to many other markets around the world, but also a lot about purchasing real estate property remotely or out of your backyard uh, in a more general manner. And we also touch a bit about my own personal philosophy, life, business journey, etc. So nice, long conversation. It's about an hour and 20 minutes that touches a whole lot of topics. Sit back, grab yourself a hot or cold drink, enjoy the conversation, and I'll see you again on the other side. Welcome to International Real Estate Advisors with C. Ray. Today I have with me Ziv Nakajima again with NTI. Did I do good? Did I do good, Ziv? What you is, did what perfect. Did? That, that, was, that was the best pronunciation I've ever heard, actually. <laughs> well, how are you? Welcome, welcome, and, and, and good evening to you. No, good morning. Good evening to me and good morning to you, right? That's it. Yeah. I'm awesome. Thanks. How are you? Doing good. I'm doing good. Um, today was a rather cool, wet day here, but it's all good. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm having a good time. I was excited. I told a bunch of people about our interview uh, to come. So, I was like, well, I'm excited tonight. I ain't even going to a club or anything like that. If that's what it uh, ignites excitement for people, I was like, I'm excited. <laughs> We're going to be talking about a lot of cool things, and we have to get on into it. Where are you connecting with us from? I'm in Fukuoka, Japan. It's um, like the biggest city in Western Japan. Oh, my, 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 
Claremont. Well, we'll get right into how how did you get started? What do you do? Because I know I didn't really elaborate on what NTI means, but I'll, I'll let you do all that cool stuff. Yeah, sure. So uh, NTI stands for Nippon Tradings International. Uh, Nippon is the Japanese word for Japan or one of the Japanese words for Japan. And what we do is um, we basically represent people who deal with any kinds of real estate in Japan, but for some reason or another, they're not doing it directly. So uh, all of our clients are foreigners or non-Japanese and about 80% of them live outside of Japan. So they don't have an address here. They can't open a bank account here. They, they can't, uh, I mean, Japan being Japan, it's, it's very insular. So basically if you're dealing with a Japanese professional, it's very difficult for them to wrap their head around the concept of dealing with foreigners. Um, they don't speak any language other than Japanese. Um, they don't normally, aside from, you know, very few select professionals, they normally wouldn't know how to um, uh, communicate with people overseas, uh, send money overseas, receive money from overseas. And all of the local entities that you're working with also still require a local address, a local phone number, somebody they can pick up the phone to and chat with in Japanese when they have something to notify you. So 80% of our customers can't do that. They live overseas. Um, Japanese bank policies don't let them open a bank account. They don't have an address, don't have a phone number. And it's very difficult for them to find people to work with on the ground here. So if you think about like any other country around the world, say you go to, even in Asia, you go to the Philippines or you go to South America, you go to anywhere. There's usually a host of real estate professionals that want to work with you, like they want the uh, they want the foreign investment. They want people to uh, come in and give them money to, to and buy stuff from them, and then the investor kind of has to pick the reliable ones, right? Make sure you don't get swindled and you know that your money is in safe hands. And here it's weird, but it's exactly the other way around. Like everyone's super professional; they're all by the book. Everything's got a paper trail, but it's really hard to find somebody who'll actually work with you. Right? So. What we do for our customers is we bridge that gap. So we give the, first and foremost, we give the Japanese side a Japanese face to deal with. We promise them that they'll never have to speak to any scary foreigners and they're not going to have to look at English documents and everything's going to be done for us and we're all Japanese, don't worry about it. It's like the same way you're used to doing business. And then for the foreigners, we give them like a English single point of contact for everything. So... We deal with the realtors for the purchase and the sale. We deal with the property managers. If it's a condo unit, we deal with the building management company, uh, tax authorities, insurance, everything. We do everything for them in like a single point of contact in English. And that just opens up the market for them because if they were to go direct, then they would only be able to work with, you know, the five or 6% of, of professionals in Japan that can actually deal with foreigners. There's not many of them. So if you're buying like um, a penthouse in Tokyo, which is, you know, pretty internationally savvy, then you could do that. If you're buying something in like an international ski resort, you might be able to do that. But all around the rest of the country, which is usually where the, um, especially for investment, is usually where the better deals are. And if you're buying a holiday home, say it's where the more attractive, cheaper deals can be found. There's just nobody that you can work with. So 80% of our customers live overseas. We do all of that for them. And the rest of them live here in Japan, but they're just either their language skills are not up there or they just don't have the bandwidth or they just don't want to deal with it themselves or just need professional support, consultation. 
Um, so about 20% of them actually live in Japan, but they're also um, non-Japanese. Do you have a, you have like a vast level of knowledge and it appears you're very connected. So at the core, did you begin your career in the financial space or did you begin your career in the developmental space? Cause you've been in, you probably said it and I missed it that quick. How long, you've been in Japan for how long? As far as kind of- About 10 years now. Nine, nine, years, nine years in Japan, we started our business when we were still living in Australia. So the business has been around for 10 years, uh, but I've been physically here for nine years. But no, I, I've got, before that, I had absolutely no real estate uh, or investment experience. I actually came from uh, IT. So oh. yeah, I was an IT project manager for many years. Um, but, you know, funnily enough, the same sort of skills that I applied in that career really translated well to what I'm doing now. Um, and I guess a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, you're basically, when you're in charge of a project, say in IT, or, you know, let's call it a construction project or a, or a government transformation, whatever it is that you're doing project management-wise, you're dealing with spreadsheets, you want to, you know, there's stakeholders, there's people who have interest in the project succeeding, there's people that you're going to have to overcome challenges with to convince them to get on board with the project, you you have a budget to run, you have profitability that people keep keep track of, um, and you're just juggling these million little balls constantly just to, to make sure that, you know, everything just gels together and works smoothly. And it's very, very similar when you're dealing with, um, especially investment real estate, which is, you know, still, I'd say more than half of our business these days. Um, so not a huge difference. And because, because we're nationwide and we're actually working with third parties, right? So again, we work with the realtors, with the property managers, with all of these um, different professionals that are involved in the process of purchase and management and sale. So... It's, it's not really, it's done remotely. And, you know, when you invest in, I mean, your podcast is all about investing um, remotely, basically, right? Investing in, in other countries or another look out of your backyard kind of thing. So you and your listeners probably know, or, or maybe are, you know, people who are new to it are starting to get the hang of things. So they realize very quickly that when you're, when you're doing business remotely, the due diligence changes, right? Like if you're investing in your backyard, due diligence consists of going to the site, looking at the property, um, you know, checking things out, you know, boots on the ground, hands on and, and making sure that everything is the way it's represented to you. When you're doing business remotely, the due diligence becomes picking the team, right? Making sure that the people that you're dealing with are doing their job right, making sure that information is you know, relate smoothly on both ends and that everything, you know, meets the deadlines and that all the, all the uh, you know, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and all of that. And that really, um, that really is the, the basic of, of project management as well. It's basically what you're doing is you're dealing with people. The due diligence is related a lot more to people than the actual end product because you're never going to be there. You're never going to no, I mean, you might come to visit and have a look around, but you don't know the location. You, you're not there on a regular basis. You really need to trust the people that are doing it all for you. Um, and that is really not that different, regardless of what the product is. Sure, you got to know it, um, but you mostly have to trust the experts and make sure that you're dealing with the right ones. That's a good point. I never considered it from that perspective, but you're right. It's just a, 
a huge, in this case, a, a huge project for most people, a very large project, uh, I might add. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I appreciate that, Ziv. There you go. <laughs> so where do you, <laughs> where do you find most clients? I know they're coming, about 80% are coming from outside of Japan, but do you find that it's the uh, Europeans that are most interested in Japan? Do you find that us uh, United States of America, us Americans are like so wanting to get over there? Or is there, I don't know, something that you notice as it relates to percentage-wise and population-wise, how they uh, get to you? Um, that kind of ebbs and flows with the global economy trends, more or less. So like when we started, which was, again, just over 10 years now, that was 2000, uh, early 2012, late 2011. That was just after the uh, global financial crisis. And a lot of economies around the world were hurting at that time, kind of like they're doing now with COVID. So at that time, we didn't get anyone from the US because you had so many really good deals in your backyard, right? Like everybody was buying stuff off foreclosures and everybody was buying properties, you know, for a cent on the dollar and they just didn't need to go anywhere. Didn't even consider it at that time. So most of our customers then were from Australia, from Singapore, um, a little bit from Hong Kong. So places that had really expensive uh, and relatively small property markets, or at least small in this, like Australia is huge, but there's only really three, four cities that you can really do any deals in Australia, unless you're super creative and going to mining towns and stuff like that. But basically the, the most of the country is desert, right? So you got Sydney, you got Melbourne. So people in Australia, because property prices were so expensive in those big cities and yields were so low, um, they're from the get-go, very open-minded to investing overseas because they want to get something better than and more affordable than what they can get back home. And same goes for Singapore, same goes for Hong Kong. They're basically um, uh, city countries, right? Like city states. The market is super small and very limited. So by nature, they're always looking overseas. So when we started, that was most of the deals. And then as the global economy improved over the years and rebounded from the global financial crisis, there were less and less attractive deals, first in Europe, then in the USA, then in Canada. And then we started getting a lot more customers from those spots as well. Uh, these days, it's very diverse. So I'd say about 50% of our clientele still comes from Australia and Singapore. Um, maybe another 30, 40% from the US and the rest are all over the place. So a little bit in Europe, Malaysia, Thailand, New Zealand, um, you name it. No clients in Africa yet. Looking forward to get the first one from there. Oh, that'd be interesting. That'd be very interesting. That'd be <laughs> something I definitely want to hear about. Like, how does that, because I've always been kind of curious about some of the things that they have kind of going on over there as far as opportunities. And I have always wondered, well, where do they sometimes look to deploy, you know, capital for those that uh, have those funds and have that, have that surplus available? You know what I, I mean? Think, where, do they, where do they look to deploy? Capital? I think so South Africa is the only, I mean, obviously all African countries are usually have a huge gap, like there's a rich and poor thing and the rich are the rich. They don't, you know, go to people like us. They just go directly to, you know, big rich owners of, of quality assets and the deals are done directly usually. But I think 
the only country in South in, in Africa that actually, you know, your average person actually has a capital that they could invest is probably South Africa. Mm-hmm. And they've got um, they've got really strict limitations on how much capital they can take out of the country for some reason. I think they're only allowed to take out about 10 or 20,000 bucks a year or what. Interesting. I didn't know that. But it, I, I can, you know, some of the things that I've read and just kind of over the years have kind of, um, I guess, kind of came to realize I could, I could see that. That, that. that makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Some of the things I've kind of read and just learned through just uh, history-wise, I, I could definitely, I could see that that would really suck, though. But, I mean, I guess it, I don't control anything, so I won't even go there. <laughs> I won't even go there. So then my, my next thing is, whenever you're talking about real estate in Japan, there's a difference between how you can look to see or expect projected returns with the residential property as opposed to some type of commercial property. And then y'all have some agricultural real estate opportunities that sometimes present themselves as well. Is that true? Agricultural is a tough one in Japan because the, um, there's a, um, there's a monopoly. Japan is all about um, domestic agriculture. Like we got to grow our own rice. We got to grow our own vegetable. Everything has to come from within the country. And if it comes from anywhere else overseas, it's like lower quality in their eyes. So there's a huge um, monopoly body that controls, um, I forgot what they're called, um, the, like the far, like the National Farmers Union, something of that sort. And they've got really strict regulations on who can actually own agricultural land. So usually that's one of the only um, types of land in Japan that's not going to be open to um, foreign purchases. Um, But there are projects related to agriculture. So you could, for example, um, you could invest in an operator that's growing stuff on some land of their own, help them build the facilities and then share in the profits. Um, but that's super hands-on. We're, we're honestly not involved in that much. Most of our clients prefer to be um, a lot more passive than that. So they prefer a kind of uh, uh, monthly money in the bank paycheck kind of thing. And that's usually the best place to get that is, I mean, the most stable place to get that is residential properties. And um, commercial properties can be good. You can definitely raise the rent on a regular basis on commercial properties, which you can't do on residential properties in Japan. Um, but they're a lot more volatile because, you know, when the economy goes up and down, uh, commercial property, I mean, businesses will, might go bankrupt, they might close, they might, scale, you know, downscale or, or downsize or relocate. That doesn't happen with residential tenants, especially with Japanese. Japanese, um, they like things to just never, ever change. So the same person, if they can, would live in the same property Till the day they die kind of thing so the tenants are much more stable with residentials um, but the downside is again you can't can't raise the rent Interesting. so then how do investors expect to see those returns it sounds like just you you need to be open to the fact that it's not an appreciation thing like, you no. know, in the States, we do, you know, forced appreciation, you know, and, and we got this accelerated appreciation, stuff like this, all these tools and I guess um, opportunities to influence our investments so that we can maximize the returns that we're looking to uh, obtain 
But in Japan, mm -mm, it sounds like pretty much everything for the most part. And when we're talking about that, which will be most profitable residential is cash on his cash flow. Cash flow is, is the definitely why people come here. It's definitely not um, speculative. There's no, I mean, the growth does happen occasionally, like um, since 2012 until right about COVID hit, we had a lot of growth here. Um, but that's on the back of like two and a half decades of deflation after the, there was a big bubble bur that burst here in the 1990s. And then over that period of time from 1990 to 2012, property prices um, went down by more than half, right? Mm -hmm. And then they started climbing rapidly again until COVID hit and now they're kind of stagnant again. So it's not an environment. I mean, it's great if and when appreciation happens, but it's not what you'd be banking on when you invest in Japan. That's not the reason people come here usually. And the advantages um, are the, well, firstly, the fact that it's, the tenants, the professional companies that you're working with, the, the government policies, everything is super safe and stable and regulated. Uh, tenants stay in place for a long time. No one's going to swindle you, run away with your money. It's just alien to the Japanese mentality to do that. There's, you know, of course, there's bad apples. They exist everywhere, but they're really tiny, tiny amount, fraction of what you'd find in other countries here. And so that stability on the one hand is what draws people here. The other thing is that the cash flow is pretty high, right? So if I look at Australia, for example, I'm not that experienced with the US, but if I look at Australia, for example, um, the last asset that I liquidated that I was holding in Australia before I moved here um, was generating three and a half percent, if I'm lucky, kind of thing. Um, and here... We usually, I mean, we deal with foreigners, so they usually don't look for anything too low because they can get that at home. They come here for higher cash flow, but we'd normally not see anything below five, six, seven percent here. And if you're lucky, it goes up to eight, eight and a half. So if in Australia I was, you know, making three and a half percent and then hoping that capital appreciation will take me the rest of the way. Um, and then sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, depends on the year, depends on the time. Here I'm, you know, I'm starting with six, seven percent from the get-go. So any any appreciation that occurs is just icing on the cake. It's just a bonus for me, right? Okay, so you all are dealing with high single digit returns. At most. At, at most. At yeah. most. You can tweak that if you're doing short-term stays, Airbnb or monthly rentals. Um but then it becomes, again, it becomes more hands-on, right? So there's property managers that can do that for you. But still, even as a passive investor, there's a lot more decisions to be made. You need to keep track on vacancies, occupancies. You know, it's, it, it's seasonal. So if you're looking for passive cash flow money that you can just sort of put away and then get a return every year without thinking about it too much, and yeah, I tell you, high single digits usually. Are those also properties that you are expected to occupy for a given period throughout the year? Or would those be opportunities you can buy and be a non-occupied, um, non I'm, I'm saying it wrong, I'm brain for today, but not live there throughout the time that you are. Um, oh, you mean you recently. occupy them personally? Right, like if I if an investor buys the property, are they expected to occupy the property for any given amount of time? 
or can they no, 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 purchase no. the property? Oh, you mean be... because because they're foreigners, kind of thing? Right, right. No, right. no, no. So Japan's the actually the only country in the Asia Pacific region that has virtually no limitations on foreign purchase or ownership. None. Everything yeah, the land the land is freehold. Um, you're not taxed anymore because you're a non. Actually, you're taxed a little bit less because residents actually have municipal taxes that you don't. Um, so yeah, it's complete. It's a completely open market. The, I mean, there's maybe one percent of the market that's you know if it's right next to a military base or it's a culturally uh, protected heritage kind of street in a particular traditional um, historical city, but that's that's a fraction of the market. Ninety nine percent of the market is is completely open for investment by foreigners. Promising, very promising. Yeah, but the How problem you... again is that, that it's all open on a government policy level, but when you get down to the ground, you actually need to find people that you can work with. You need to find a bank that'll let you open a bank account as a non-resident. That's when it, that's where it becomes difficult in Japan. You, let's, let's go right into it. So, <laughs> had a conversation. <laughs> with Daniel and he was giving me a little insight about the fact that it's it's not necessarily one of those things where you just walk in there and say hey I need to borrow I'd like to borrow x amount of money I have x amount of money to put as a down payment I want to purchase this piece of real estate or this asset I, I've understood that's not that's not how that works how does it work as far as well, for a non-resident, just forget about it. Loans are just not available unless you're living here. Um, and even if you're living here, you need to show them an income history for um, for an owner-occupied home at least a year. For investment property, usually something like three or four years. And then they let you borrow only based on your um, income, on your earning capacity and, and repayment capacity. So they don't care about any assets that you have. There's no drawing on equity to, to you know, recycle a loan or refinance, none of that. Um, you can basically borrow up to seven times your annual income. And that's your entire borrowing capacity, whether it's for your own home or investment homes or whatever it is. And the only way for you to increase that is by increasing your monthly income or paying down some of that debt. And then, you know, you've got borrowing capacity again. So for someone wanting to get their, let's say, toes wet, you pretty much need to be prepared to pony up all, your, all the capital that you're going to need to get started. It's if you're coming from, let's say, the United States and you don't have a history of having lived in Japan for any amount of time where you were making a certain amount of income that you could use that as, uh, I guess, a foundation to have a conversation and engage a uh, lender. You, you don't have that. So you pretty much need to have all that capital up front to get started, right? Yeah, but that's the other, that's the third thing that draws people to, to invest in Japan or to buy property in Japan is that it's very affordable. So. If you think about, um, like, you know, back in the 90s, Japan had this, this pre-bubble burst. Japan had this image of being one of the most expensive places in the world. And um, it's kind of reversed now. So central Tokyo, central Osaka, and, you know, some of those fancy schmancy uh, ski resorts up in the mountains are still expensive. But the rest of the country is, is extremely affordable. So just to give your listeners an idea, you can buy a a reasonable investment property, say a studio or one bedroom apartment in any any city that's not Tokyo or Osaka um, for prices starting as low as 20,000, 25,000 US. It is a very low entry point. 
Okay, yeah. so that, that's where you can kind of get that balance and that shift where, okay, now we can start making sense out of this. Yeah, so for the price of your down payment, basically mm-hmm. you'd be able to already buy maybe two properties, right? Exactly. That You know, you're, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on. That is... And so tell me this. I know I've heard, and I don't know how true or false this is, but I know I've heard in the past that, you know, um, how you say it? Japanese families aren't necessarily uh, allowed or not encouraged, let me say encouraged, that's a better word, to just have these big families, you know, like, you know, a football team and stuff like this. Is that still kind of true? Does that also kind of hold well with why you would maybe see more smaller families? So if you did buy a one bedroom or maybe a two bedroom resident resident you would, you know, very likely have an easy time leasing it out? Well, Japan as a country would love to see the population grow. It's actually the fastest declining population in the world. People are aging here super fast and they're not having too many babies. And they're, um, I mean, they don't get married as much as in other countries. And they definitely not, I mean, even if they do get married, I think the average uh, number of children per family here is like 1.2 or something. It's, it's super, super low birth rates. Um, and that's not due to any government policies. It's, uh, you know, there's you know, quite a few books and we can talk about this for a few hours. You speculate why that's the case. Uh, if you ask me, it's, um, it's mainly the fact that um, immigration is... Japan's very anti-immigration as a rule. It's not a country that makes it easy to, to migrate here. And the mentality here is still very, very old school as far as uh, women's rights and women's roles are concerned. So it's generally expected in Japan that the woman might work until she gets married and then become a housewife. Um, but the thing is, is that Japan is also a modern country. So it's not like women here are, you know, insulated away from the rest of the world. They see that women in other countries have a much better deal. And so they're just, if you ask me, they're just voting with their rooms kind of thing. Like I'm, I'm not going to sit at home and take care of five babies while, you know, you go off with your mates for work for drinks every day. Um, I'll just sit at home, watch TV and, and you know, go to a cafe with my friend. If I got to be a housewife, I'll enjoy it. Why, why would I work? Um, so they're, they're not, they're choosing not to have babies. So, I mean, that can change either by giving women more freedom of choice. And it's not like it's an official, like they, they have equal rights by law. It's not that. It's just that, you know, the roles are, that they're going to get in companies are ridiculous. There's no women in management. There's no women CEOs. Very, very few. And so even if they do work, they make far less money and they're relegated to just ridiculous roles like, you know, serving tea for the men while they're having a meeting kind of thing or, you know, scanning and scanning and filing those kind of roles. So then unless the, the, the mentality here changes on a very deep level and women see that they've got more options and the government needs to play a part by giving them, I mean, they're not even giving them an, um, childcare options here. Like basically if your husband's making a salary and you're officially, you could be home taking care of the kids, then, you know, you don't get subsidies for hope for childcare. Or it's very hard for you to get into, like there's huge lines to get into your um, local childcare facility center. 
um, because you've got a source of income in the house um, and that's, you know, the government deems it enough for you to survive on your husband's salary. So you're going to be relegated last in line when applying for childcare spaces. So all of that needs to change on both a mentality level and an official policy level for women to even want to think about having babies. Um, and then the other part of that is if you don't allow more migration, because migrants usually tend to have more babies than the Japanese. So if you allow more immigrants to come into the country and set up shop here and have a life and start a business and start working, that would also potentially increase the birth rate and it would increase the population if you let immigrants in as well. So as long as those two, um, those two issues are not seriously tackled, I don't see that changing. And as a result of that, from our perspective as investors, um, yes, so singles, uh, singles homes like uh, studio units, one bedroom units, um, maybe couple with maybe one young child kind of level, like two bedroom with a dining kitchen kind of thing. And that's usually the asset class of choice. And the other, it's, it's just a lot easier to find tenants for these kinds of properties. Um, if you do happen to have a family-sized property, then a family tenant is good because they're going to stay in a, a lot longer. So if your typical single would stay in, let's say, an average four or five years, and um, your typical family will probably be staying in place an average of eight, nine years. And it goes beyond that. I mean, we've got singles in units that have lived there for 15, 20 years and families as well. But the average is about that. So... Families will stay in place for a longer period of time, um, but it's a lot easier to find a single or, or maybe couple tenant at most. And also, um, I don't know, they're kind of socially awkward, the Japanese. So there's not, when they meet, they meet in groups of males and females, unless it's, unless it's like an official matchmaking or like kind of blind date thing. And then there's a group of guys and group of girls and they, you know, awkwardly get together and, and chuckle and stuff like that. Um, but generally speaking, they're very socially awkward. So they don't form super strong relationships. They don't invite people over to their places usually. They usually meet outside in restaurants or cafes and stuff like that. So the, the, your typical Japanese property, I mean, even when we say studio one bedroom in another country, it's very different to what you're talking about here. Here, they're usually somewhere between 15 to 25 square meters, right? It's like, uh, I don't know what that is in feet, but it's a pretty small kind of personal space. So it doesn't really give you much space to invite people over as well. A hotel probably for us, if I had to guess. Yeah, hotel room-ish room. kind of thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I've always- and, and, a small, and a small hotel room at that, not a suite. Oh, right, I would say no yeah. suite involved here. It's, no. it's gonna be a small hotel room, but uh, oh, what does the- uh, what are the insurability options there as far as how do you do that? Is that something that is essentially, you know, necessary? Is it, you know, absolutely like a no option kind of thing? You, you have to make sure that you've insured your property to, you know, whether it be, I don't know, earthquakes or, or whatever. Um, how, how does that work? Is that something that it's, I guess necessary or required and I kind of you know appreciate it you're not obliged legally but you you better so you definitely want to insure your properties um, but insurance here is super cheap I mean for the studio one betters we're talking about something like 200 bucks a year or what um sorry sorry no 200 bucks for five years so we're talking about like something like 50 bucks a year yeah 50 bucks a year yeah 
And that covers yes. you that covers you up to 100% for most types of damages, up to 50% in case of an earthquake. That's amazing because that's something I know a lot of people, whenever you're buying in the States, for instance, it's definitely a point of discussion because as say in Houston, for instance, we, you know, obviously get, you know, hurricanes, you know, natural disasters, whatever. We, it, we all are, you know, here and kind of, um, you know, just kind of in a vulnerable place, so to speak. And every year that's something, if you own property here, whether it be residential, commercial, you're probably very interested to hear what does that look like for the for the coming year? And like this year, for instance, uh, flood insurance for residential properties is going to be all over the place to some extent because it has the ability. They said for some, it's going to go up four times whatever you were, you've been paying, and for others, it might stay where it is. But they've changed the guidelines and just it's just it's it's crazy the insurance that we have to pay on our properties and we're just talking about you know residential properties in many cases so when you look at it on the commercial side it can get pretty it can get pretty crazy especially if your property is one that was affected by some type of hurricane or something like that earlier on and it has that in the history that usually affects how you will be graded or rated for a particular rate in the future. So, I mean, $50, I mean, people can eat that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, but I mean, mind you, that, that's for a property that, that's for a condo unit where the structural maintenance is actually covered by the reserve funds that you pay to the, um, the owner union, like, like the HOA. Um, you pay a certain amount and they keep that in the reserve fund and that supposedly take care of all structural maintenance and renovations and repairs. So it's a little bit different if you own the entire structure because the insurance you're paying for a condo unit is basically insurance for the interior only, right? That the exterior is taken care of. So when you're buying um, when you're buying a property where you own the entire structure, that can be a couple of hundred dollars, um, depending on the size of the property, a couple of hundred bucks a year or a month if it's a multifamily, for example. So if you wanna, I'll just open. One of the last deals that we did on behalf of a client, I'll tell you how much it costs. Give me a second. So for a building, for example, if you're owning a multifamily property, I shouldn't call it multifamily because they're all singles units, but the multi-unit block of six units, say, uh, okay. single bedders. Um, in that case, your insurance is about a hundred bucks a month, right? Or somewhere between seventy to a hundred dollars a month, depending on the size of the property. Okay. Um, but still, you got six times your income because you got six of these units as opposed to a single condo unit, right? I was gonna say that's still. I, I think that's still pretty good, though. At the end of the day, because yeah, you got six of those. It's not like you're talking about one. Because I mean, here we could have one home. And let's say the home is two thousand square feet and the owner owns the whole thing, they might pay, especially if you're uh, closer to the coast here in the uh, Houston area. So you might be somewhere out here where I am and I'm in a sub suburb of, of uh, Houston, it's uh, called Pearland. And um, an owner might pay, let's just say about $1,500 for uh, Texas wind and hail. And that's only one piece of the total pie as far as insurance is, is concerned. <laughs> 
So that's that's still pretty good, you know what I mean? Because there's still more money that an owner such as uh, in this area will still have to look to possibly depart with X amount of capital for their property. So that's still pretty good. I, what you just said regarding an asset of that time. Well, yeah, bear, bear in mind though that the price of the property is probably a lot higher there. Um, so if we're talking about this, um, for example, that building that I've just mentioned, that entire six unit block cost less than half a million, right? So we're talking about 40, 400,000 US for the entire building. Um, so there's less for the insurance company that actually to actually compensate you if and when something happens. And also, you also want to get landlord insurance, um, which you get per door. And that's in case... Um, in Japan, again, because of the aging population, a lot of the time you've got elderly tenants and they can occasionally die in the property. It does happen. Um, so that covers you as well for um, renovation of the property if and when a tenant passes in it. And also for up to about a year of uh, missing or reduced rents as a result of that. Oh, so you're compensated for, you know, that person having passed on and it, you know, you need time to essentially kind of prepare the property for the next tenant. And so there is compensation that is provided to the owner for that time that you need to essentially just kind of push the reset on the property. It's not really that much for the time. I mean, the time, if a tenant passes in the property or a tenant just moves out, there might be a, you know, a bit more work involved, but not beyond another month of vacancy or so. The reason that they compensate you for uh, missing or reduced rents is because in Japan, there's a bit of a stigma around properties where somebody's passed away. If they died in the property, if they died, if they were hospitalized and died out of the property, then the insurance doesn't cover you. And it's also not an issue to get a new tenant. But if they died in the property, you need to disclose that to the next tenant in line. And there is a bit of a stigma around that. So you're either going to have it stand empty for a while um, or you might get a, you know, kind of a don't care, don't, don't mind kind of tenant who just wants to pay as little as possible, have them over for a year. And then when they when they move on, then the next tenant is going to be back to normal again. So the insurance covers you for that period of time, for a year of um, reduced or missing rents as a result of the stigma kind of thing. We interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say this. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now, the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really, the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you wanna give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely wanna reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. 
And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Tristan, never heard of anything like that. Yeah, I think that the, the I'm not to say the stigma, but yeah, that concern, that probably is something that's throughout the whole world. Because I know here, whenever you have properties where, you know, sometimes crimes, you know, took place and someone died, but not by way of natural causes or an illness or something like that, it, you know, it was murder or whatever, those properties are usually pretty you know, um, concerning to many people, but you'll have others that are not, I don't know, they're not as bothered by it. And they're willing to just, hey, come on in there and just get going with, you know, maybe sprucing it up, painting some walls, just getting everything clean, you know, just essentially presenting a new product out there on the market and they'll put it out there. But it, it for some people, it's like, mm, not so much, not so much. Yeah, same okay. story here. So if it's a murder or suicide, that's going to be really tough. Because that, that also, I mean, there's websites that catalog that and people actually check to make sure that that hasn't happened before they, they move into a property. Not like an official government website, but people who are into that kind of thing, like they like to keep track of where murders and suicides happen. Um, but if it's of natural causes, there's still a little bit of a stigma in Japan. It's even if somebody just peacefully died in the property, um, it's still a little bit more challenging to rent it out for the next tenant in line. So the insurance covers you for that. And the, the cost of renovation and repair can be, even for these smaller single you know, studio or one bedrooms, cost of renovation and repair after a tenant's been in place for a long time can be, let's say, up to eight, nine, ten thousand bucks. Um, so the insurance covers you for that as well. And it, that's only, that's about $60 a year per door. Uh, so for the, for the amount of, you know, hassles that it saves you, if anything like that does happen, it's definitely worth it. So what are, I guess, are there any perks that are afforded uh, an investor whenever they're investing in Japan? Like, I don't know, do they have the opportunity to residency, visa, anything like that, or not so much? Are there some, some, some tax kickbacks you, uh, that are available for people that, are uh, invested in Japan? Um, the tax kickbacks can come into play if you've got, um, if you're buying properties under a company name, and that can be either a company that you've already got in your home country or uh, like a branch office that you set up in Japan kind of thing. And then there's some creative accounting that can be done offsetting costs and losses and profits one against the other, if it's a mother company and a, and a branch office kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, or if it's the same company and it's got, you know, profits in the U.S., but then it carries forward the cost of property purchases or losses in Japan and, you know, offset them against the, the other. So that's doable, but it's not specific to Japan. It's just like international cross-border accounting kind of thing, right? If you get a creative accountant, they can do a lot of stuff with that. 
Um, to get a visa is possible. It's not directly related to the fact that you own property. But again, if you set up a company and that company, for example, uh, let's say it's an asset management company and it purchases properties and it hires uh, cleaners or, or, you know, you hire your own staffers to, to manage the portfolio or stuff like that, then you can get a visa through that. But I mean, property, property investing being a sort of a passive endeavor, the, the percentage that you're going to be getting is going to be, like we said, high single digits at most. So to generate that kind of minimum that's required to actually maintain and constantly renew a business visa is going to be, there's going to be a lot of capital involved. So you need to generate, to get a business visa to Japan, you need to be making, as your official salary kind of thing, you need to be making something like $25,000 a year or $23,000 a year, two and a half million yen. And to generate that kind of income from property, you're looking at a property that's at least $800,000, $900,000 if you're thinking about 6 7%, right? So, yeah, it's doable, but there's cheaper businesses to buy into that will generate the same sort of return. Um, so that, that's actually a new business that I'm, I've just started now with a new business partner is going to be helping people invest in businesses in Japan as opposed to properties. And oh, then... Uh. And then the visa option becomes much more viable. And also, if you've got dependents, it's the same amount of money again. So 25,000 bucks a year for you. But then if you've got a spouse or a child or a few children, you need to double or triple that amount to get them as dependents on your visa too. Okay. For them to be able to come with you, essentially, it's not yeah. like they just go off of whatever your information uh, provides, but okay, makes Unless sense. if it's a spouse and they've got a job in Japan or, or they're making income or salary off the company as well, then that's okay. But otherwise, you as the uh, as the as the sole provider kind of thing, if you want them to be um, granted a visa that's dependent on your business visa, then you need to double, triple that amount, etc. So again, all of that is a lot easier to achieve if you're actually running an actual hands-on active business. Um, rather than investing that in, in passive property uh, rental income. Okay, that's all, it's all coming together. So the, the key players are, you know, like I was talking to someone uh, some time ago, we were talking about how it's so interesting to know who are like the key players necessary for each given um, place, you know, throughout the world in which you um, invest. And so, are the key players, many of them, your attorneys, of course, attorneys are seem like, I don't care where you go. It's always good to have an attorney, uh, a real estate attorney uh, specific to your uh, needs. And then um, there's a notary, someone tell us what are the, who are the key players? Obviously someone like yourself, because you're going to be able to make it happen because you're going to be able to make sure that they have these necessary folks and they're getting to the right folks so that they can get the right information. But who are the key players? So the, um, I'd say the, the most important kind of team member that you want to have on your team is a property manager because they're really the ones who are going to be making or breaking your investments. If you've got a crappy property manager, your property is going to, just going to be standing vacant. And that's most important. With Realtors here, it's, um, it's kind of a funny market. Like I know in Australia or in the States, um, you basically shop around for a really good agent. And then you said, okay, well, this is what I want to buy. Go find me that kind of property. And they get on it and they negotiate for you. It doesn't work like that here. So 
there's a huge number of real estate agents, especially in the bigger cities. And a lot of them are national offices. They've got an office in each city, but you're going to be working with a totally different person in each of these offices. Um, and the market is very much an open market. So all of the property agents have basically access to the same sort of database, the same kind of listings um, that are available out there. So, I mean, we, because we've been doing it for a while, we do have, you know, a few favorite agents that we work with. But even us, when we're searching for a property, we're going to find a property listed online. And then we're going to usually just try to communicate directly with the agent selling the property, whoever that agent might be. Once we've done a few deals with them, then they'll start sending us, you know, listings maybe before they publish them online. So it does make it easier for us to sometimes get in, get in the door quicker before, like, um, before a lot of people start making offers and stuff. But basically, you don't need to have a specific realtor that you're working with. You just go on whatever the open market has to offer at any given point in time. Um, legal, again, each and every agency would have their own either in-house or, or company that they partner with for conveyancing and for the legal aspects of the ownership transfer. And Japan, again, Japan is a super by the book, fully documented kind of country. You don't need to worry about triple checking that the title did. Uh, yeah, so again, any any um, real estate agency that you'll be working with would have their own um, legal professionals that they can assign to the sale. Um, it's, I mean, we like to work with our own whenever possible, just because they've worked with us and, you know, all the little intricacies of dealing with foreign buyers, like here in Japan, everything is done with like official stamps. Obviously, somebody overseas is not going to have an official Japanese stamp to affix to a document. So we have to go with notary publics and, and signature certificates and that kind of thing. So the, the property lawyer that we work with has just done it so many times. That it's a really smooth process. Otherwise, it can be it can be a bit time consuming and you have to explain to them how it works overseas if they've never done it before. But essentially, you, again, you don't have to have that kind of person directly on your team. You can just use the one provided by the agency that you're buying from, uh, buying via. Um, you want to have an accountant. That's definitely something that you want to have uh, is a local Japanese accountant who knows you and knows your income stream, um, both in Japan and overseas, um, if, especially if you are buying under a company name. Um, um, yeah, otherwise, the property manager, that's really the most important thing. Like whichever city you're operating in, you want to have a local property manager in that city who knows the city, who knows how to advertise to get the best kind of tenants, who knows which areas are easier to get um, students or retirees or young couples or they just don't know the dynamics of that particular city. Mm -hmm. And that one I can't stress enough. That's really a large part of our work is, is working with property managers on a regular monthly basis and the ones that are not proactive and not really creative and not coming up with solutions. Like sometimes property would be vacant longer than usual because it's a, just the wrong time of year or there's suddenly a lot of, um, a lot of supply in the area for whatever reason. Maybe there's a brand new development that was built around the corner and that's creating, you know, uh, that's pushing down prices on the older properties in the area because people get a new one for, you know, not too much of a higher rent. And so you really want a property manager who's got their finger on the pulse and is constantly, okay, two, three weeks passed. We only have so many clicks, so many people called. We're not getting good traction. 
Is it the price? Do we need to offer a bonus to potential tenants? Do we need to reduce the rent? Do we need to uh, maybe advertise in a different kind of way? That's really what's going to be making or breaking the investment. So if you're not working with somebody like us who's doing that constantly on a regular basis, you definitely want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on that. I, I have total respect for that. That's a huge part of it, it sounds. Uh, so I got, I got, I got a question I'm, and I'm curious because I've, I've just been, you know, thinking about this as, you know, what's going on in the world right now. Are there times where you observe where the investor is coming from? Certain opportunities will kind of be, I guess, presented to them more so than maybe if they were coming from another place. So, you know, you know where I'm going with this. I'm just curious to know, like, if right now an investor is coming from, you know, I guess the the Ukraine, the Russia area, are, are, are there times even prior to this where investors are, you know, kind of, I guess, presented with opportunities maybe in a lesser form than if they're coming from, I guess, more prosperous or more or less um, politically influenced areas? Are there times like that? Like, I kind of wonder about that whenever we're talking about developing countries, you know what I mean? Where maybe third world countries where the countries are still kind of on the rise, but maybe you have a select group of people that are able to kind of have that surplus to invest in, in, in certain things. Is that is that at all influencing like how people are able to obtain real estate in Japan? So we, we've been from the get-go because I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, geeky by nature. I'm, I'm not much of a, I'm not much of a salesman, right? Like I don't really do cold calls or advertising or cold emails or stuff like that. So we've been from the get-go, we've been just strictly inbound marketing. We get our customers by just putting out a lot of free content and publishing it on various platforms and um, just giving people information, jumping in groups and forums, answering questions, that kind of thing. So it's not, that I'm putting out any offerings that are different, but I do notice where people are coming from and what they're looking for just by virtue of what they ask me. So I can say that, again, depending on the country that they're coming from and what sort of deals they've got in their backyard, that's going to be making a big difference. So if we're talking about yield, for example, people coming in again from places where there's no yields to be found, like um, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, these people would usually be quite satisfied with returns that are considerably lower than other people. And people coming in from the States or from various countries in Europe or from various countries in Asia where you can get higher returns. So those kind of people would definitely be happy with lower yields, whereas people coming in from the US or Europe or Asia where they got um, higher yield deals in their backyard might be looking for, um, I mean, other places in Asia, Singapore and Hong Kong notwithstanding, um, they would be looking for much higher yields. That's one thing. The other thing is also the country would sort of dictate the profile of the client. So, for example, um, Western countries um, like Australia, the US, Canada, and most countries of Europe, our typical clients from there would be um, sort of middle-aged or maybe early middle-aged or maybe retirees, professionals, professional couples, people with, you know, a lot of disposable personal income. 
And then depending on what they would want to buy, if it's a holiday home or an investment property, their budget would be different. Uh, whereas if we get somebody from, again, let's say Hong Kong, Thailand, Malaysia, um, Singapore, in many cases, they'd be um, like higher net worth individuals or family offices that are purchasing on behalf of a larger family that has got some substantial capital to spend. And then they'd be looking at bigger ticket items as well. So it really depends. And whichever country we're dealing with, there's always people who are just looking for just to, you know, get their feet wet and enter the market for the first time. And they're looking for the cheapest possible deal that they can get. Mm -hmm. So I would say, but again, because, because financing is not really an option unless you've got a company in Japan or residency in Japan, um, it would never be beyond maybe 1.5 million US at most. Um, even people who have more than that in cash are not too not too thrilled with putting all of it on the one asset, right? So I would say the gamut. I mean, the the largest number of properties that we normally sell would be somewhere between sixty to maybe three hundred thousand US, and then we occasionally get people looking for less than that or more than that. Do you um, see any uh, one? generally coming to the table now with the interest to utilize some of the blockchain technology and the tokenization of some of the real estate in Japan right now? They ask about it a lot, but I can tell you there's been a few a few startups here that were trying to do real estate via blockchain or crypto would accept this kind of payment. We haven't worked with them directly. Um, it was sort of a gimmick. I think one or two of them are still out there, but they're focusing more on like um, prized assets that, you know, crowdfunding, that kind of, not really what we're active in. Your average real estate agency that's listing a property for sale here is, they're not even going to know what crypto is. So. What about the uh, self-directed IRAs? Or, or are you seeing people, I know like here in the States, that's, an option that's utilized quite a bit whenever people, um, at least nowadays, are looking to deploy capital into an investment anywhere, you know, whether it be uh, local to them or outside of their, their home country, but using funds generally funded, an account funded by a previous employer, and in many cases, that person no longer works there, but they have decided to utilize that money and put it into a self-directed IRA. So then they essentially kind of, you, they call the shots on where it's invested and what have you. Do y'all utilize that at all? Um, so Japan doesn't actually recognize property ownership by these types of structures. So the only entities that can own property in Japan are either individuals or corporate entities. And those kind of arrangements, they're usually a fund structure or a self-managed fund structure. So that, that kind of entity cannot own a property directly in Japan. But what you can do is you can set up a local company in the U.S. I think it's pretty, it's pretty cheap to set up an LLC in, in the USA. And then if the fund owns the company and the company then owns assets, that's not a problem. But then you've got to take into account that's usually not going to be worthwhile um, for lower, for lower, lower, lower priced assets, because 
if you if you're owning property under a corporate entity as opposed to an individual your annual bookkeeping and minimum corporate tax um, all of your annual upkeep for the company structure um, and accounting for the structure in Japan is going to be about somewhere between two to four thousand bucks a year so if you're talking about a couple of you know studio or, or one bedroom units that are maybe generating two three thousand bucks a year each and uh, that's obviously not going to be worth it right all right that makes sense you have to kind of find that balance in there okay i can appreciate that so what are some of well we talked about a lot of them did we leave out any missteps on things foreigners need to be cognitive of when they're approaching the Japanese market? I mean, we've talked about a lot of different things that are like very important whenever people are embarking on the journey. Well, it's mostly mindset, right? There's a few major differences that you just need to wrap your head around before you start making inquiries even in Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, the first one is what we've mentioned. It's a cash flow market. It's not a capital appreciation market. So don't come in here expecting to make, you know, huge leaps and bounds. And the second is, again, we've discussed that uh, financing is not, a, is not an option if you're not residing in Japan and you don't have residual income in Japan. And the third thing um, is that you really need to know... Um, People and professional companies in Japan are also run by people. So the, the people that you're going to be working with on a regular basis in Japan, they put relationships above all else. So they're not, they don't need your money. They got a huge domestic market at their disposal. They've got a lot of customers that want to do business with them on a regular basis. So again, if in another country, oh, foreign investor, come over here, let's do some business. It's not going to be the case here. So if you come in all guns blazing and I got a lot of money to invest, you go find me the best deal. And oh, what's up with that? Why is that? They're just not going to work with you. They're not going to return your emails. They're not going to return your phone calls. You're just an annoying, tire-kicking foreigner to them. And from the get-go, working with you is a lot more of a hassle and a headache than it is than working with a Japanese customer who's you know knows how things are done here. So... You really need to take things at their pace and observe your manners. There's a proper way to conduct a meeting and present a paper business card with both hands and politely politely speak on the phone and uh, you don't say negative things very strongly. The whole relationship, conversational communication mentality is very different in most of Asia and even more so in Japan. Um, so you really need to get to know the, the little nuances of how you should be communicating with these companies on a regular basis. Like, for example, if an agent, if you do, let's say you do manage to strike a relationship with a particular realtor and, you know, you tell them what you're looking for and they start sending you listings, the way to do it is not to just ignore the listings that are not appropriate for you and just get back to them when there is, because after two or three emails, they're going to stop sending you emails, right? So what you want to do is when you receive the list for them, you you call them on the phone and you politely say, thank you very much for sending me that list. Those were very interesting. Like, like the, um, we spoke a little bit about that offline, like the compliment sandwich, right? Yeah. Like those are very interesting properties. I really appreciated the fact that you've sent me these properties and thank you. Like there, there's a whole preambling um, 
like a prologue to every conversation in Japan that you have. Thank you very much for your time and your effort. And I'm sure it must be difficult. And those are not exactly what I'm looking for. And this one is interesting, but the yield is too low. This one is interesting, but the location is a little bit too far from the station for my taste and blah, 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 blah. Make it a really polite conversation that ends with you pointing at what you actually want to see from them next time. And then the relationship will survive and flourish and you'll eventually get what you're looking for. But if you, if you either don't reply or for example, you know how in, in I know it's like that in, in most Western countries, I'm sure it's the same in the USA, like we get a bunch of potential properties. They all might be interesting. We submit offers on five or six or seven of them, or we ask for more information on five, six, seven of them. And then once we get the information, we look at it and we decide we're going to go with this one and we just put the other ones aside, right? Mm-hmm. You do that in Japan, those five or six agents that you haven't purchased from will never work with you again. It's basically expected that once you initiate the communication, there's got to be a really good reason why you're not proceeding. And you have to relay that reason when you're refusing to buy the property because the agent went out of their way and spent the time and effort to collect all of that information, whether it's from the seller or the building management company, you wanted to see the renovation history for the building, you wanted to see the tenant profile, you wanted to discuss potential negotiation on the price. If you then just decide on a different property because you like that one more than the other one um, and you submitted offers on five or six of them, but only actually went ahead with one, it's just not done here, right? So when you submit an offer, you need to clearly write on the offer that this offer is pending due diligence and we will still want to review the renovation history. And then if you don't go ahead with the purchase, again, you pick up the phone, you call the agent, you say, thank you very much for accepting my offer. However, reviewing the building's renovation history, we're a little bit concerned about this and this and that. So unfortunately, we're sorry, but we're not going to be going ahead with this deal. And then that's acceptable social conduct and that agent will work with you again in the future but if you just again the the come in all guns blazing and assume that people want your money and will want to do business with you and will do their best to satisfy you until you agree to give them your money just not going to work here interesting because it's kind of somewhat flipped because like here you go you see properties you know let's say multifamily because that's something i spend a considerable amount of time uh in you see properties, they send you, you know, you're generally on a, a email blast. That's essentially what, what a lot of us are on, some form of email blast the broker has sent regarding some properties because they come daily, you know, by the pound. And you'll sign the confidentiality agreement and uh, which is, you know, all electronic sign that, get the information. And so you just begin looking at it and most of the time, well, it's it's definitely like you said, it's it's definitely expected or I guess appreciated if you give some feedback as to you know the properties that you downloaded the information, give some feedback as to I guess why you like you said choose not to move forward. But what I what I kind of cringe or just kind of see like man that sucks is when you do submit an offer, let's say an LOI, you submit an LOI you're not guaranteed to even get a response back as to whether or not you were in the final few or the final uh, round of people that might get awarded this opportunity. You have to, in some cases, go and follow up with that broker and ask, 
well, did I make it to the final round? What what happened? You know, so it's 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 kind of interesting because they seem the brokers and the agents, I should say, seem more willing and and apt to just kind of taking a position that a lot of buyers and over here take. Meaning, you kind of want that feedback from that broker, but here, yeah, it's kind of a hit or miss. Sometimes you'll you know run across some that are really good about it, and others. Not so much so. And it's really difficult when you are relatively new to the space, meaning you don't have a long resume of just properties and assets that you own. It's even worse in many cases because they, you know, they see, well, you're new. So then there's an idea of can you claim close the deal? Can you, you know, get it done? And it's it's a challenge. It's it's a lot of competition, but y'all seem like y'all have the um, the agents there are kind of like it's a pleasure for you to meet them kind of thing which that's always it's cute so. communication is just really key here it's i mean proper manners about everything that you do in japan is really what this whole culture is based on and that same goes for real estate is actually an old school industry here in japan it's um it's a lot more traditional in a lot of aspects than um, other more advanced um industries so it, it's really i mean they, they really expect that here and um, I guess the last thing maybe that, and that doesn't really apply to Japan specifically, but for anyone investing overseas is the whole exchange rate thing, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're dealing in a different currency, um, you really want to really make sure not that you're necessarily making the purchase at the right time, but that you're remitting funds across at the right time, right? So... If you've got US dollars and let's say that you've decided that you want to invest in Japan, it's a very good idea to monitor the exchange rates on a regular basis. And when the rates peak in your favor, even if you don't have a particular property that you're gonna be settling on the next month or, or in the next two months, when the rates peak in your favor, that might not happen again for another year. So you transfer your money across at that time, assuming that you've got somebody who can you know, hang on to it for you there or an account or one. And then when the opportunity comes along, you've already got yens or, or Singapore or wherever it is you're buying in that account ready to make the purchase. Because if you wait for the last minute just before settlement, rates might suddenly plummet and you're suddenly paying 20% more for the property because the dollar took a hit right, or whatever. And the same goes for remitting your income back home. So if you're accru- accruing your rental income in another country, um, rather than, well, obviously don't, don't invest with money that you'll need back in a hurry. That's always like that that's 101 for for investment but even if you're relying on that money for some annual payments you definitely don't want to be relying it on it for paying a monthly mortgage back home or for paying for your shopping or for your rent back home um rather than you know an international remittances usually cost at least 50 60 bucks right so you you want to let that money accrue and again continuously monitor the exchange rates And regardless of whether the money's been sitting there for six months or 12 months or 24 months, when the rates peak in your favor again, let's say the Japanese yen suddenly, you know, bounced up against the dollar or the dollar took a hit, that's the time to withdraw your income and transfer it back home. You're making an extra 10, 20% on the transfer just there, right? So don't, don't, don't look for a monthly withdrawal, look for when it's actually profitable to withdraw. And doing it that way, you can actually make an extra nifty profit on whatever whatever rental income you're accruing rather than, you know, be hurt by those exchange rates. Because if you suddenly need money back in a hurry 
or if you don't have any money, like let's say you withdrew all of your money back home because the rates were favorable, you haven't left anything in the, in the country of investment. And suddenly, uh, you know, an AC unit or a hot water boiler goes in one of the properties, you suddenly need to transfer 500 bucks or a thousand bucks from the US to Japan at, you know, first off, you'll be paying those 40, 50 bucks on the international transfer just for that small amount. Plus the exchange rate might be not in your favor at the moment. So you always want to have a, you know, reserves sitting in both countries. And if you if you time the exchange rate rights, that'll gain you a lot more than, you know, it, it's a lot better than just sticking them in a term deposit or what, because you can actually make an extra 10, 20% just on those little transfers as well. Very good information. I hadn't thought about it like that, uh, but that makes a lot of sense to just kind of have the things, the money in place ready to earmark and be deployed where it's needed, when it's needed. But when the, being rates, able to are, when still, the rates are in your favor, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So how do people go about, I guess, contacting you? And then as you tell us that, what does it look like if someone's listening and they want to reach out and have a conversation with Ziv about working on some things that they're interested in doing in Japan? Um. Well, we'd first have a, you know, a long exchange of emails or a kind of a chat like we're doing now via voice or video and just to get a rough idea of what that person's budget and criteria and what exactly their goals are. And we, it would help if, we, if you let us know if you're already invested anywhere else in the world, what you're invested in. So if, you know, like if you're 80, 90% of your portfolio is, is um super speculative and dependent on, on potential growth, then maybe we'd want to play it more safe and stable cash flow. If on the other hand, everything is safe and stable that you already own and has got very low yields, then we might you know, aim for maybe to be a little bit more adventurous with your Japanese investment to try and at least get you 20% of portfolio gaining higher yield, right? So we want to get an understanding of who you are, what you're looking for, how much you're looking to deploy, and if there's anything in particular that you know you're more attracted to, like you're more into residential, more into commercial, you're more into holiday homes, whatever it is you're looking for, and then we can put in, you know, a couple of hours of free research on your behalf just to give you an idea of what's available on the market at your criteria, and then beyond that, once you want to actually do more research or do due diligence on properties, start contacting agents, sellers, submitting offers and so forth. At that point, we need to be engaged. So you need to uh, give us authority to act in Japan on your behalf. There's a couple of documents that you need to have signed and witnessed. And we need our fee estimate paid in advance because we start working from the moment that you start asking us to research stuff. So, and also again, because if we end up submitting offers on your behalf and you then just pull back or disappear, um, that agent is never going to work with us again. And we really need to cherish those relationships because the number of agents in Japan that agree to work with foreigner clients is, is very, I mean, it's difficult to begin with. So there are, we charge in advance, at least for the first deal, um, just to make sure that you're a serious buyer. And then post-settlement will credit or debit you depending on what the actual purchase price ended up being. So you pay us our fee estimate based on your budget or your approximate budget, and we can we can gear that towards the lower end of your budget. And then in the end, if you ended up purchasing something that was a bit pricier or a bit cheaper, then we'll credit or debit post-settlement. Um, and that's basically it. And our fee covers you until you end up settling. So you don't need to pay us more and more if you're looking at 100 different properties. It's just per transaction until settlement. 
So how did it, where you, where you hang out, Ziv? You hang out on LinkedIn, you hang out on Facebook, or you're just more uh, of a direct guy? Get in touch with me directly. LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, so there's definitely only one of me with that name on LinkedIn and on Facebook for that matter. Um, otherwise, we've got our uh, website, nippontradings.com. Um, I'll write that down for you later so you can put in the show notes if you want. Um, on Facebook, our business page, and we've got a very active Facebook group as well, um, both under the Just Japan Real Estate, uh, where the, um, we're usually the first one. And uh, our podcast, if you Google or look in the iTunes store for Japan Real Estate Podcast, we're the only one out there. Um, I exist on Instagram, on Twitter. I, I can't say that I'm super active there, but you're welcome to reach out there as well, just with my name. Uh, on Instagram, again, we're just Japan Real Estate. Wow, wow, wow. We had a good time. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Huh? We talked about no, no, we covered time. a lot. Good stuff. Yeah. So you got, I know you're aware of these fun questions, but I change them. So I don't think you know what they are. You got a minute to share with us some cool facts about Ziv? What, personal? No, fun questions. Ah, sure. Go for it. Okay. First one, if you could be a cartoon character, who, which one would you be and why? Oh, my God. Um, I, I'd probably put myself down there with Wile E. Coyote, I think. I've got all of these uh, fancy ideas. They don't always work out, but I like trying them out. <laughs> wow, I haven't heard that. I'm like, I haven't watched that ever. But I remember that was funny. Yeah, they're funny. Okay. Next one, if you could be a singer, who would it be and why? A singer? Yeah. Ah. Paul Simon, I think. Paul Simon. Paul Simon. Why? Don't, don't even say you don't know. I saw that face. Don't say well, you don't know. No, that's the guy from, um, he's on the show where he, 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 he grades your performance, like, right? If you no, can no, sing no, or no, whatever. No, 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 no. That's oh, another shit. Simon. No, no. Paul Simon. No. That's all right. I'm just showing my age. He's um he's of the uh of the Bob Dylan era and kind of sings about similar things, like just really down to earth, normal people, you know. He's just a really nice, he's a good poet, and I love I love his song. So what you don't want to give us a little a little a little No, no, that's right? not gonna happen. Move on, move on. Next question. <laughs> Okay, last one. If you could be um, an actor or an actress, your choice, mm. who would it be and why? <sighs> my favorite, I, I can tell you my favorite actor is, I don't think I'll ever be him, but uh, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman is unbelievable. You, um, he just, he completely transforms himself for each and every movie. He's never the same character twice. It's not like, you know, some of the bigger actors are amazing, right? Like Robert De Niro and stuff, but they always play themselves, right? There's not much variety there. But this guy is just like a chameleon. Each and every movie is a completely different personality and character. And uh, uh, I admire that in an actor. So, yeah. How does that connect with Ziv? Are you completely different character from day to day, Ziv? Are you trying no, to I'm not. I guess that's maybe that's a skill. <laughs> I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. So maybe I'm a bit jealous of that. <laughs> Okay, I can see. Okay, I get it now. I understand. Okay. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, it has been a 
pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to hang out and share this wealth of knowledge. Thank you. It's awesome talking to you, too. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Siray is an awesome host. Real pleasure to chill and chat with. And as you could probably tell, I was having lots of fun with this one. Hope you did as well. Don't forget to follow her podcast if you're interested in global real estate property markets and want to learn more about how they work in different countries. She's got some really interesting conversations with really interesting people featured on the podcast. Hope you find some value in it. And don't forget to rate her and give her a review. Let's help her reach as many people as she can. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again.